Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And today, Associate Craft Editor Sarah Shackett and I will be discussing the incredible soundscapes of the Matrix movies. But we'll be doing things a little bit differently, so stay tuned for that. And support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's Licorice Pizza, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It was named Best Film of 2021 by the National Board of Review and nominated for eight Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture. It's now playing everywhere, and I'd add that in some theaters it's still being projected in 35 and 70 millimeter films, so definitely check your local listings for that. And it's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. You know, we always say that sound is 50% of filmmaking, but that's, of course, not always how we cover it or even how we talk about it. And so one of my goals for 2022 is to figure out how we can experiment with doing a better job covering sound. And so a couple weeks back, Sarah and I interviewed Matrix Resurrections supervising sound editors, Dane Davis and Stephanie Flack, both about the new film, but also their 20-year-plus collaboration with the Wachowskis. But what we also did is recruited podcast vet Zach Valente to come aboard to help us produce this episode and to help us see how much sound from the film we can use to bring Stephanie and Dane's work to life here on the podcast. We did a similar experiment on a smaller degree uh, a couple episodes back on Licorice Pizza, which I thought went great, and I hope you enjoy this latest effort. The first Matrix was, if I'm not mistaken, the first movie that kind of worked in a completely digital environment in terms of its sound. Am I wrong about that? It was the first movie that I did completely in the box. I had three racks of outboard gear I'd been collecting for decades, and that's what I used to do sound design. But I also had a, a fat Mac, you know, the very first Mac and the very first audio design programs. But that was super, super unstable and very limited those days. But it seemed when I was about to start The Matrix that it would be very poetic and appropriate if I did it all, you know, inside the computer. We still recorded the Foley onto 24 track because that was such a reliable sound, you know, the analog 24 track with noise reduction. But yeah, almost completely digital audio post-production chain. Dane, let's go back for a second to, to the late 90s because right now, uh, you know, digital sound is, 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 it's what everybody does. It's the industry standard and, and your capabilities are, are almost endless, but that wasn't necessarily the case, right? In the late nineties and what you could do on that fat Mac. I'm wondering at the time, did that kind of impact the approach to sound? Well, it certainly impacted my approach. The computers were had less processing power than your microwave by far would have today or, you know, anything like it. We think of digital audio and digital video as being perfect capturing of reality and high res. But in those days, certainly when you're working with plugins and things, there was a graininess that was very ugly. For me, the challenge was finding programs that could produce an aesthetically beautiful texture and feeling and still suggest that quantized numerical universe. And I would test all these crazy programs and ended up using some, you know, almost beta programs that did help me define that sound. Differentiating the real world from that virtual world, right? That was a key challenge and still is. 
Yeah. Uh, to bring you into this, Stephanie, because you came on to the Matrix franchise in Reloaded and, and Revolutions, and you have to continue to complicate and, and sort of build those arcs again and again in subsequent films. I would love to know how the challenges of that differentiation evolved um, into movies two, three, and four. It was, what, 18 years between Reloaded and Revolutions going into uh, Resurrections, and we never really thought that was going to happen, so that was a surprise <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> we thought it was put to bed, but uh, it resurrected itself. So in terms of, you know, what I did on the film, I was mainly dealing with the dialogue and the ADR. We had new tools to make it better, and also it was a great challenge because Neo and Trinity always spoke quite often quite low in very large scenes, like in the dock and stuff like that. And there just wasn't the tools to clean it up in a way that you can do now. And in those earlier films, we used very little ADR. Lana has evolved her attitude and her use of ADR. She often cuts picture and sound not in tandem. So she'll go through and cut a scene visually for the performances, for the emotional content, for the storytelling, but then we'll use other sound takes to put into the scene. And that, of course, can be a little Frankenstein. And so smoothing all that out is is the great challenge. So you're talking about you're talking about the sync tracks, like you're talking like she'll cut for picture, but without the sync dialogue and then some, she'll, she'll have it how she wants, and, but then she might go pick a different sound performance? Yeah. Her key focus is the visual storytelling for that sequence. Then she'll go back and through the miracles of script sync, they'll go back and pull all the different readings and then she'll go through and cut in the best reading because you don't always get the best reading with the best visual. Can I ask something about your game? Sure. Did you base your main character on yourself? There is a lot of me in it. Maybe a little too much. Can I ask you something else? Please. There's a woman in your game. Trinity. Traditionally, you would always use the sync sound, but she operates on levels that don't exist anywhere else in the <laughs> universe. <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's got a keen eye and she's got a very acute ear. And she just, her takes go for the whole length of a card. So she just resets, 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 or just doesn't even necessarily reset. It just is this kind of flow of she'll talk the actors through it. It's a very amorphous, unrestricted, free-flowing recording compared to the old days of, like, cut, you know. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating. We, we did a piece with Daniele, um, the Wachowski's longtime camera operator, who, who actually stepped in to be the cinematographer on this film. And what Daniele was describing was fascinating because it goes right with this, is that their approach has become this more improvisational, this kind of more go with the flow um, in terms of the shooting style and this in this kind of nature on set. I, I'm assuming that's what the case and that's what you're talking about here. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk about what that means for, for this new film. Yeah, they've worked together on a few projects and uh, he also worked on Sense8, which we did. Traditionally, when you're shooting on film, there was an awareness and a consciousness of film cost. 
But now there's no cost. If you run for 26 minutes and you shoot all this material, you're not paying per frame. So there's that freedom. And they have a a really interesting relationship where Lana and Daniele become like one and they move together. I don't know if you've ever seen any shots or footage from any of the, the films. They move together as one. They're one organism shooting the scene. He was describing something because when they had the two cameras that Lana needs to see the second monitor. So they created some kind of thing where she's practically on his back and hand on his back. So they had to like put like a monitor for the second camera like somewhere on his back. So she's kind of like looking through over his shoulder at the camera he's holding, but they could keep an eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's also another innovation, right? Which uh, Sensei was the first time we really saw that where she didn't care about getting in the shot right from the other couple of cameras because it was inexpensive enough to just mat it out so she just got the coverage she wanted from all the cameras so that's why we would see a lot of lana on screen until they they you know matted that out so that that's pretty cool from a filmmaking point of view it's a great freedom absolutely you know this film is very consciously engaged with the original trilogy. So I'm curious in terms of sound, were you guys like pulling from the original mixes? Were you reworking things? Like how were you engaging with all of that archival material? Well, as far as dialogue stuff, we want to start with that. I mean, there were a lot of those clips that are sort of like memories that had to be found in stems. Yeah. Those memories were the audience's memories. Right, right. So we really tried to stick to what was in the audience's head, because that would also be what is in Thomas's. In terms of sound design, yeah, that's a, that's a huge topic. At last. Welcome to you. I'd read the script and wasn't sure how much time had elapsed in terms of the evolution of uh, things in the real world as well as the virtual world. That was my first big question. Lana was mega, mega busy as, as always, but I got her on the phone for like two minutes, you know, while they were shooting still in Berlin. She said, well, in the real world, what worked hasn't changed. For instance, she said, the Sentinels work perfectly. They searched, they destroyed. So the idea was Sentinels, even though it was much, much longer, were being manufactured in a very similar way. Same with the ships. The propulsion systems of the electromagnetic hovercraft, it worked through all those tunnels, but they were new ships like the Sentinels. They were actual new individual units, but the technology was similar. But saying all of that, there were whole new species, right? All the synthians. It's okay. You'll meet him. This is Sebebe. That's Octocles. That's Lumenite. They had evolved from the mechanisms of the Dockbot, who was just sort of a mechanistic organism that released Neo from his pod. She just suggested that, you know, great, 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 great grandchild of that thought bot would be Sababy and an octoplease, like one was sort of a cousin of, of the other. That was really fun for me because I had to think the way the machines worked 60 plus years ago. 
and I had to find the original uh, recordings that I used to make the Dockbot and to make the Sentinels and to make the ships, which was a giant challenge because it was, you know, 23 years ago. I did the original movie six backup formats ago. <laughs> the machinery doesn't exist. The operating systems don't exist. The software doesn't exist. That's a whole another interesting aspect of how time moves on in the digital world. But once I found enough of that material, I had to just sort of give life to these new organisms with related source material. You know, the same kind of metal that the machines had access to in their forge someplace. So baby is, uh, the, you know, the same whoop, 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 whoop sounds that we heard on the Dockbot, but now Sababy goes really fast, but also now has a very gentle side, right? Sababy has sort of gone over to the other side. And one of the fun challenges, hardest challenge, was coming up with a sound for Sababy that was maternal and gentle, right, with Neo when Sababy finally gets to meet Neo. And we discovered that any sort of vocal sounds that we tacked onto that big blob of Sababy, it made it into a cartoon and it took us out of that sort of metal reality. So the propulsion sounds that Sababy used and Octocles had to also function like communication, like vocals that Bugs and some other humans had learned to discern because they could speak Sababy. So that the whoop, whoop, whoop becomes a whoop, 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 you know, when the baby's flying, but then it becomes that deep purring sound when they have human, human, I said human contact. Mm. That's so funny. You know, they had physical contact, human to, to sentient contact. And that worked out. Conversely, the Sentinels may be similar machines, but we see sides of the Sentinels now that we never saw. Right. It's that scary maternal side as they're reassembling Neo and Trinity. I, I thought that came out really cool. I could go on and on about that. But obviously I could talk about the code, which also had to have a very clear evolutionary tree to the original code. I took a picture of the code from the first movie, the shot where Neo sees the three agents and the shot of Neo in, in code. And I, I used that picture in an audio program called Photosounder. And that just became the audio tool. And I rendered out these bits and pieces that sounded much more elegant and in some ways simple. And that is what we hear in the end when Trinity loops out. I, I want to make sure I understand this. You took a picture of the code from the early movie and you put it in an app that turned that into, into sound? Exactly. It, it creates a spectrum that you can then twiddle in lots of different ways uh -huh. uh, and a texture because it, I, I wanted it to sound the way it looked. I did a lot of tuning and, and I had to also clean out anything that was annoying in the rendering. But that's how it was made, which is also, you know, tickling because for the first movie, I created a lot of those, certainly the code and a lot of those digital textures using the very first version of an app called Medicine. Mm -hmm which was made by a visual graphics company. They just happened to use an engine at that time that had a very beautiful texture to it. So many of those sounds were created with that visual app because most audio apps just sounded crappy at the time. <laughs> kind of geeky, but... <laughs> no, all for, all for geeky stuff. Okay. I, I have to say, it, every time I step into the Wachowski uh, universe, it does 
always feel like I didn't get the right philosophical degree in grad school or something. You know, it's just, it's just like there's that element of like, oh, you took a picture and turned it into sound. You know, it's just this kind of like, yeah, no, no, of course. It's very true. And and with them, it's great because they are always coming from a different perspective and they have a different frame. And she approaches filmmaking in very, very different ways. Like she doesn't really care what the established procedure is. I'm actually thinking of an interview I did with um the casting director, uh, Carmen Cuba, she was talking about all the different directors that she worked with and being very clearly, she works with Soderbergh. Soderbergh is very much about, is this person going to want to work the way that Steven works on set, which is a very distinct way. All these different conversations that when she got, and when she got to, to Lana, it was like our conversations early on are deeply philosophical. I'm wondering how those type of conversations lead to an approach to sound design. Because sometimes we're talking about very practical things here about how do you make the code sound 20 years new. But I'm, I'm wondering some of the ways that that philosophical element ends up in the, in the sound work. We certainly always had a lot of conversations that were not about sound effects. In fact, most of the conversations we had over the years <laughs> they're not about sound effects or about dialogue for that matter. Obviously, the whole matrix window on the universe is philosophically based in terms of Plato's cave and all the other questions people have been asking. What is real? What is the nature of perception? You know, all those things. The storytelling is based on that dichotomy between what is real and what appears to be real. When you've got multiple layers of reality, which wall of the cave are the shadows dancing on in, in this moment? So that's super cool. And there are moments in this movie where it feels like those walls intersect in an interesting way. Uh, I'm thinking about when Bugs and, and the crew are finally able to pull Neo out of the Matrix. And there's this beautiful moment in the theater where Neil Patrick Harris, who plays the analyst, is trying to keep Neo in. And there's this sort of tug of war across a mirror. I wonder if you guys could talk about designing that moment and sort of the play between the Matrix and the real world and, and the different layers of the Matrix that we get to see here. Thomas, none of this is real. You are in the midst of a serious psychotic break. Lexi? Almost there. Thomas? Thomas, please, this is not a game. Feel my hand. This is what is real. Stay with me. We had to play around with, you know, either side of the mirror, and we recorded a lot of stuff for that. And then some of the flashbacks from previous films. We just did a little bit of uh, ADR for breathing and, and for the efforts and stuff like that. But mainly it was just kind of a lot of the effects for the mirror and dipping in and, you know, nearly falling through and the analyst turning up trying to lure him. You know, it went back to the very first scene in the very first mirror. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can't be. Be what? Be real? We found that hearing the sound of Neo digitizing, you know, his hand getting all metallic. At first, it would make sense when you're seeing that in between the close-ups of the hand that we would hear the sound Neo was perceiving, but we figured out on the stage in the first temp that it didn't work that way. We had to break it so that when we weren't looking at Neo's hand, we weren't hearing any of those sounds. They hard cut. And in the new scene, it's much softer, right? It's sort of in everybody's perception at the same time. 
It must be interesting because that in, in so many different ways, if you switch the perception or if you switch which side of the line you're on or if you switch whose head you're in or which space you're in, I imagine the scene changes radically. I'm sure in some cases it works versus doesn't work, but I imagine sometimes it's also just different, right? It's a different perception, which is right for the story. It's challenging to create a path for the audience to make sense, but not for them to be aware that they're being led across all these blurred lines and for them to be able to absorb it intellectually and emotionally without doing any hard work. And it's also defined by, like, even just mixing when you're playing with the subject, right, is very tricky because the axis from a sound panning point of view, right, in a modern 5.1, 7.1 Atmos environment, the rules of where sounds pan is very different than the visual axis between the eye lines of the characters. So the way it seems to shot and cut doesn't necessarily determine where we put the sounds in the room. But that does affect whose perception you think you're in, right? If sounds are panning really hard, you feel like you're in that person's head, whether you're looking at them or not, which creates a bit of a conflict in terms of storytelling. And a lot of times it's a compromise. When the picture is cutting back and forth, you do very minimized panning, even though it's technically wrong. And the same with echoes and stuff and reverbs, right? On this movie, there are all those memories and recollections. You hear the reverberation and you perceive it the way the analyst is making Thomas feel it. Can you hear me, Thomas? Follow my voice. Feel the tips of your fingers. What are they touching? The bell. Do you hear the bell? He's sort of projecting that suggestion of a memory as he's describing. You stepped off a rooftop. One of the scenes for me that was very challenging was Tiffany's workshop. Finally, we can talk like adults. That was the first time that kind of dialogue had been interwoven with bullet time. We had background effects that were like fireworks with the welding and the arcing and everything like that. And everything was happening at different speeds and the cheated dialogue again and slowing the dialogue down to make it sync, but you can't stretch it to the point where it sounds like a monster. And the music, we did a lot of temps and it was always evolving and we were always finessing it and refining it to the point where it, it really is quite a beautiful simple symphony now desire and fear baby just give the people what they want right it's pretty seamless i i think because you're just following those characters the, their speech a big challenge for me was the scene in the game company at deus machina when thomas runs into the modal morpheus in the bathroom at last and then his reality completely you know, disintegrates I knew that was going to be tricky. And after we did that temp, Lana's comment to me was, this scene just can't get too real. Those are the best words a sound designer you know, ever hears. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, you're on, you know. And for me, the fun was figuring out, like, what is going on in this scene? And then how would that be expressed? And I just saw it as a, a, a battle for control over Thomas's destiny. He's just in this fabric of space and time that Morpheus and Smith are pulling on. And he's just experiencing this collision. So how do you describe with sound effect that confrontation, that 
opposition. I just played around and, and I just let myself go, which is the funnest thing always, you know, and I just came up with the most insane approach ever. It's like a mega Doppler situation where nothing stabilizes. All the sounds kind of come from zero pitch to real pitch and they either keep going higher and higher out of real pitch or they go back down again so you there's this stepped sort of arpeggiating quality to everything going but a key thing was that took a lot of extra time was making sure it wasn't too musical the feeling of it was very musical and people described it uh, you know, they came into my room as musical. So I had to be, as always, but especially in the scene, careful that the intervals, you know, between each of those repetitions didn't suggest a, a musical chord, you know, a musical interval and, and didn't suggest a, a scale with any kind of melody. So trying to have things stepping in and out and not seem like part of the music. It was tricky, but I think in the end it worked great. And I'm very happy with that scene. It's a beautiful scene. I'm, I'm glad it, it all came together in spite of a pandemic and all the other impediments. Well, well, thank you both. It's been a treat to, to come back to this world. And it, the sound has always been such a huge part of it. It's, it's beautiful work. In support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's Licorice Pizza, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It was named Best Film of 2021 by the National Board of Review and nominated for eight Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture. It's now playing everywhere, and I'd add that in some theaters it's still being projected in 35 and 70 millimeter films, so definitely check your local listings for that. And it's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. 